Hey, let's turn our Bibles tonight to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. And why don't we all stand for prayer? And this gives you a chance to stretch before you have to sit back down for a while. Father, thank you for your love for us and thank you for the trip to New Orleans and all the wonderful things that were accomplished, the hope that was spread, the work that was done. Thank you for those that volunteered to go. And Lord, we thank you so much for their efforts and for the love that they extended to the folks in need. Lord, help us to remember uh, these victims in our prayers, Lord, and help us to particularly remember Pastor Kevin and the churches there in the area, Pastor Steve. And Lord, just help us to support them in the ways that we can. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we know that as we go through your word, week after week, your word goes through us. And a cleansing takes place. And faith is built. Our lives are strengthened. And we pray tonight that you'll encourage us. You'll teach us many lessons as we go through these interesting chapters. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Harry Potter is a young wizard who is enrolled at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Harry is a student magician. At this school, he learns to cast spells and consults the dead and uses his magical powers to reach his goals. And he plies the art of witchcraft. Of course, Harry Potter is the fictional creation of author J.K. Rowland. And he's become the hero to kids all around the world. Rowling's novels portray Harry not as evil or as satanic, but as a good kid trying to do the right thing, all the while using the magical powers that God has forbidden to accomplish his goals. And this is what makes Harry Potter a quandary for Christian parents. On moral issues, Harry has a sense of right and wrong. But he's a wizard and a sorcerer. And he delves into areas that God forbids. Spiritually, Harry is evil. Morally, he might be a good kid. In many ways, Harry Potter is a modern-day Balaam. For Balaam too, and a sorcerer and a soothsayer. Like Harry, he was steeped in the occult. A sorcerer who used magic and witchcraft to try to alter the physical world through supernatural means, even if it meant consorting with a demon. Sorcerers in Balaam's day would cast spells and incantations and conjure up potions to bribe supernatural forces into accomplishing their purposes. Often people in need would even employ a sorcerer. It was power at a price. And Balaam too was a quandary. For he knew of God, and he understood God's sovereignty. In a sense, in some ways, he honored God, and yet he delved into sinister practices that God outlawed. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, 18, verse 10, makes it clear what God thought of Balaam's profession. There we're told, There shall not be found among you one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Strong words, and still very applicable. God wants us to look to Him and Him alone for supernatural power and wisdom. Consult your horoscope and you forfeit the counsel of God. Tune in to, psychic, to the psychic channel and you tune out the Holy Spirit. These are all practices that we as Christians need to avoid. Reminds me of the husband who'd just gotten off the scales at an amusement park. It was one of those coin-operated scales that gave you your weight and then printed out your fortune. And so the wife grabbed this fortune, and she read it. And afterwards, she started laughing. She said, your fortune says that you're handsome, debonair, and wealthy. And on top of that, it even has your weight wrong, too. In other words, you can't trust psychics and fortune tellers. Today, J.K. Rowland uses the lure and the mystery of the occult to make a buck. 
Sadly, she compromises any spiritual integrity that she might have in order to sell Harry Potter novels. And this, too, will be Balaam's downfall. For he went divining for dollars. He straddled the fence or tried to between good and evil in order to sell his services to the highest bidder. There was no question that God disapproved of Balaam's practices and eventually judged him. But here's the strange twist in this story. God still used him. Balaam is given some of the most beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his first coming and his second. Balaam, I guess, is proof that God can use anyone, either a soothsayer or his donkey. Chapter 22 begins. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now remember what's happened. Moses and the Israelite armies are on a roll. They've defeated two kings east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And next on their hit list is the king of Moab, a man named Balak. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Imagine an army of three million soldiers suddenly camping out in your backyard. You too would be sick with dread. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. In addition to the sheer size of Israel's army, the word had gotten out that God had delivered these Hebrews from Egypt, that God was empowering them. They were winning victories. Balak knew of God's miracles in Egypt. He knew of God's provision in the desert. No doubt he had sent out spies and had done reconnaissance on his new neighbors. He'd been viewing them, observing them for months. Balak had a full report on the Hebrews and the power of their God. And he decided that he needed help to defeat them. And so he calls in special forces, a secret weapon. Balak sends Moab's Moabite messengers to hire him a wizard. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at this time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. We got a problem. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and, cur and drive them out of the land for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, evidently, Balaam was a well-known wizard. He was quite popular in the local wizard's union. Evidently, he was very successful. And you would think a king like Balak would hire the very best soothsayer that money can buy. And so he sends his messengers to Pethor, a city in Babylon. I guess when you want a watchmaker, you go to Switzerland. And if you want a cook, you go to Italy. And when you want a car manufacturer, you go to Germany. A soccer player, I guess you go to Brazil. But when you want a sorcerer, there's no better place to go than to Babylon. Remember, the Tower of Babel was the seat of Satan. Babylon was the birthplace of the occult. It's no surprise that Balaam lived in Babylon. Verse 7 tells us, So all the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. Apparently there was a standard fee for such services. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. In other words, they made him an offer. Said they'd pay him the going rate for sorcery. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now here's the noble side of Balaam. He wants to pray about the situation. He wants to seek the Lord. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Now I'm sure God knew the identity of these men. 
But God wants to ask him a few questions. God wants to slow down the situation a bit. He wants to give Balaam some time to really make a wise decision here. And so Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Did God make himself clear? Crystal clear. There's no iffiness here. There's no ambiguity here. God is adamant. God says you shall not go with them. So Balaam, notice what he does. So Balaam rose early in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Again, he's acting noble. I guess here is Harry Potter seeming to be a good guy trying to do the right thing. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. But Balak doesn't give up here. Notice. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. He sent some high-level officials this time. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. And I will do whatever you say to me. In other words, this time he says to Balaam, name your price. He says, therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Balak knows that the Moabites are no match for Israel. His only hope is supernatural help. He wants to employ a curse. And Balak is so desperate that he's even willing to deal with the devil. He sweetens his offer to Balaam. Verse 18. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And this is the problem we've got with Balaam. He's trying to straddle the fence. On the one hand, he is noble. He says, man, a house full of silver and gold won't sway me to disobey God. But you get the impression that Balaam's statement is a smokescreen. For he really does want the money. And that's why he asked the delegation to spend the night. He's hoping God might change his mind. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the apostle Jude mentions Balaam. As he condemns the false teachers of his day and he says... They run greed of Balaam for profit. Notice Balaam's fault. He was greedy. Balaam's God was gold. To make a buck, Balaam packs up his donkey and he goes divining for dollars. Greed caused Balaam to disobey God. We're told, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. Now, apparently, Balak's men didn't stay at Balaam's house that night. Evidently, they were in town, but not at his house. And remember, God's instructions were clear. Balaam is not to budge unless the men from Moab come call. This is intriguing, verse 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Understand, when you move outside of the will of God, you make God your adversary. I hope you know that. God's God's power is real. God's blessings are true. God's will will be accomplished on this earth. And if you oppose it, if you step outside of God's will, you are asking for trouble. The angel of the Lord, the same angel who will later kill 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. This heavenly hit man suddenly appears to block Balaam's path. The angel of the Lord becomes an adversary to Balaam. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn his back on turn her back onto the road. Donkey's traveling down the path, and the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. Now remember, Balaam is a spiritist. But apparently his jackass had more spiritual discernment than he did. This is the case with all spiritists and channelers and fortune tellers. <laughs> it's interesting that Balaam should have thanked his donkey, shouldn't he? I mean, the donkey avoided a head-on with an angel from the Lord, an angel that Balaam didn't see. I doubt if car insurance would have covered his angelic collision. But instead of thanking the donkey, at least giving her a little sugar cube, Balaam takes out his frustrations, and notice what he does. He beats the burrow that saved his life. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The donkey is again blocked by this angel, but this time he has nowhere to turn, and so he brushes up against the vineyard wall and bruises Balaam's foot. And once again, Balaam gets angry. He hits the donkey. Verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. This time the donkey has nowhere to go. So she just collapses. And it so angers Balaam, he goes ballistic. He grabs his staff and he starts beating the donkey. It's a good thing animal control wasn't around in those days. Poor Balaam would have been arrested for cruelty to donkeys. Understand, all this is Balaam's fault. Balaam is to blame. But he doesn't see the role that he's playing in these distressing circumstances. And instead of taking responsibility for his part, being accountable for his actions, Balaam takes out his frustrations on the most convenient target. He ends up beating the tar out of the donkey. Now here's my question to you. In recent weeks, have you encountered some inconvenient detours? Have you hit a wall? Have your plans gone belly up? How do you respond when your life steers off course? As with Balaam, do you ever consider that maybe God knows you're moving in the wrong direction and your problematic situation is His way of steering you back in line? Does that thought ever cross your mind? Instead of taking responsibility for your predicament, do you turn around and beat your donkey? You know, when people get out of God's will, life gets hard. And often we take out our frustrations on the most convenient target, on someone or something closest to us, sometimes our wife or our husband or the kids or a co-worker or our boss. There may be some borough bashers right here in this room tonight. You know, there's an old AA saying that holds true for everyone. If I am not the problem, there is no solution. That's worth the price of admission. If I am not the problem, there is no solution. God will go to work on your situation when you stop shifting the blame and accept responsibility for the part you're playing to create it. Someone suggested that America would be better served if we balanced out the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast with a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. Hey, freedom and privilege always comes with responsibility. Well, God gets Balaam's attention in a very interesting way. Verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Amazing. God opens the mouth of the animal, a talking donkey. Now, remember in the Garden of Eden when Eve had a discussion with a serpent. You remember that encounter? Apparently, at that time, serpents could talk. 
And there are serious Bible scholars who believe that before the fall, man could converse with animals. When sin entered the picture, this kind of communication ceased. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, perhaps you'd be, on, be able to carry on a conversation with your hamster. Or with a dog, perhaps. It is interesting to me that today at the Yerkes Primate Center, scientists are teaching chimpanzees a rudimentary form of speech. Perhaps they're tapping into some kind of latent ability to articulate with animals that God created in the animal. We shouldn't be too amazed, though, by a talking donkey. If God created the mouth of the donkey, if he then sealed it at the time of the fall, then why couldn't he open it when it suited his purposes? Once there was a liberal preacher who wanted to refute the miracles of the Bible. And he scoffed. He said, just take this example of this ludicrous, ridiculous idea that God could actually open the mouth of a donkey and that donkey could speak. How absurd. A talking jackass. That's when a little old lady on the front row of the church raised her hand and she responded, Why, Pastor, that's not such a big deal. God speaks through the mouth of a jackass every Sunday at this church. One encouraging lesson we gain from this story is that God can speak through a donkey. If he can speak through a donkey, then he can speak through any of us. I hope you know that. Don't give God excuses. Oh, God, I can't speak for you. I can't witness. I can't tell others about you. If God can use a donkey, God can use you. Verse 29. And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. Balaam gets so mad. At first it doesn't hit him that he's carrying on a conversation with a donkey. And so the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden? Ever since I became yours to this day, was I ever disposed to do this to you? The donkey's pleading his case. Hey, I've been an obedient donkey. And Balaam, it suddenly, it must have hit Balaam that, wait a minute, wait, 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 I'm talking to a donkey. Because notice his curt response. And he said, no. But then God does a second miracle. And I might add an even greater miracle. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. Guys, there is only one miracle tougher than opening the mouth of a donkey. And that's opening the eyes of a proud and greedy and selfish member of the human race. And yet God is able to do both miracles. And Balaam saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Finally, Balaam sees. And he bowed his head and he fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? <laughs> it's a rough day for Balaam. He gets corrected from above him and from below him. From an animal, now from an angel. Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. Verse 34. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Balaam finally repents. He's willing to turn back. He's willing to do whatever God asks. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. Balaam is only to speak the words that God puts into his mouth. And so Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? In other words, why, why are you so late? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. I'm here, but I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiroth-Huzoth. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, 
And he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal that from there he might observe the extent of the people. He takes Balaam to a lookout where they can observe and see the children of Israel camped on the plain. And in the next two chapters, chapters 30, 23, and 24, Balaam will utter four prophecies, four fascinating prophecies laced with references to the Messiah of Israel. Four times Balak hopes that this soothsayer will curse Israel. Instead, four times he blesses them. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam. And he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab, And he took up his oracle and said, Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. That was what he had been hired to do. But notice Balaam gets trumped. He says in verse 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Good questions indeed. You see, even a soothsayer, even a has to admit that any supernatural or demonic power is still subject to the power of God. You see, Balaam can't curse anyone that God intends to bless. And this is why I do not believe that a Christian can be cursed. I don't believe that a Christian can be placed under a curse. And I'll tell you why. Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that if you trust in Jesus Christ, God has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If God has blessed you, then nobody can curse you. That's what Balaam says. In verse 9, Balaam continues his prophecy. For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him there, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? In other words, the number of his armies is so vast. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. In other words, if I were only as blessed as these people of Israel. Now obviously this is not what Balak thought he had purchased. He gets double-crossed. He hired Balaam to curse Israel, but instead Balaam blesses Israel. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? In other words, I didn't come up with this. This was something that that God told me to say. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see me. You shall see only the outer part of them and, you, and shall not see them all. Curse them for me there. In other words, he tries from a different angle to get a different result. And so he brought him to the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? 
Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. God promised to bless Israel. And God is not going to change his mind in midstream. In other words, God's promises are sure. God never, ever lies. It reminds me of Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God had chosen to bless Israel, and Israel would be blessed. He says, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And oh my, it was not because there wasn't wickedness there. We've been following them through the wilderness. We know how wicked these people could be. But God chose not to see Israel's sin. And this is what he does with his people today. The New Testament term justified, write that down. It means this, to treat someone just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. And we have been justified in Christ Jesus. Hey, God knows you've sinned. God knows I've sinned. God knows that we failed him. He just doesn't treat us as such. He provides us the same acceptance and access and love. He shows his own son. Hey, he has not observed iniquity in you, nor has he seen wickedness in you because you trust in Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord, his God, is with him. And the shout of a king is among them, talking about Israel. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. Again, no man can curse the group that God has chosen to bless. Evil curses are powerless against God's people. He says, it now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. And I love that. Israel was a testimony to the mercies of God. A nation of slaves. Suddenly a mighty army. It was a miracle. And Balaam knows the purpose of this nation is to bring God glory. When people looked at Israel, God intended for them to say, Oh, what God has done. And this is God's intention for us. He wants when people look at our lives or when people visit our church when they look at us from where we've been to where we are, God wants people to rise up and say with astonishment, oh, what God has done. Look at what God has accomplished. He doesn't want them to see us. He doesn't want us to brag about what we have done. No, when God, people come, when people observe our lives, our testimony needs to be, look what God has done. He says, look, a people rises like a lioness. And lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. In other words, if you're not, if you're going to bless them anyway, you know. If you're not going to curse them, why are you going to turn around and bless them? That's basically what he's trying to say. You know, what am I paying for here? So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you saying all that the Lord speaks that I must do? I told you what I had to do in the first place. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. And I'm not sure why he kept thinking that if he changed the angle, he was going to change the result, but somehow that factored into his thinking. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. By now, Balak has offered 21 bulls and rams. In addition, he's been paying Balaam's salary. In other words, he's made a sizable investment in seeing Israel cursed, And again, he hopes a change of scenery will help. Chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Evidently in the previous two attempts, Balaam attempted some means of witchcraft, some tool of sorcery. He must have sprinkled a potion or perhaps cast a spell. But now it hits Balaam how silly that seems in light of the awesome power of God that has restrained him. 
This time Balaam raised up his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. And notice this. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And this is amazing to me. This is the third time that Balaam tries to curse Israel. And this time Balaam is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think this brings up an important point. Just because a person evidences some spiritual gift doesn't necessarily mean that they're living a holy life or that they've reached some degree of spiritual maturity. You remember the Corinthians exhibited a smorgasbord of spiritual gifts, but at the same time, they had a host of problems. They were immoral and carnal and cliquish and divisive. Hey, just because you have a gift of teaching or you speak in tongues or you have some other spiritual gift, it doesn't mean that God is necessarily pleased with how you're living. Just because he uses you doesn't mean you have his approval. Well, then Balaam took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Balaam is seeing a prosperous nation here, the nation Israel. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Actually, the word Agag was a title, not so much a person. Agag was to Amalek what Caesar was to Rome, what Mr. President is to the United States. Verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? God intends to make Israel the king of the jungle. To make this nation a lion among the nations. He says, blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. (laughs) Notice each of these prophecies is getting worse and worse for Balak and the Moabites and better and better for the Israelites. Remember in his first prophecy, Balaam fails to curse Israel. In his second prophecy, Balaam blesses Israel. Now in the third prophecy, Balaam curses those who curse Israel, which is his employer, Balak, think of how far you'd get in the morning if you walked in and brought a curse on your employer. You know his reaction. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam. And he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. That's not true. If you obey the Lord, the Lord will never keep you back from honor. The Lord will never withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. But here's what he's saying to Balaam. You're fired. I was going to give you earthly wealth and honor, but it was this Jehovah God, this God of Israel that's messed it all up for you, Balaam. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will, what the Lord says that I must speak. You admire Balaam to a certain extent. Balaam admitted his limitations. And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Okay, I'm leaving, but I got one more parting shot. And this fourth prophecy is extremely intriguing. It was uttered in the year 1405 B.C., but it contains a prediction of both the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Balaam here looks into the distant future, And he sees a person rising above the landscape of Israel's future. Balaam looks 3,400 years into the future. Verse 15. So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open. Twice now, 
Balaam has identified himself as the man whose eyes are open. They weren't always open though, were they? For a while they were blind. He didn't see the angel blocking his path. But now he can see. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Here Balaam sees Jesus, but not now, not near. He sees Jesus 1,400 years into the future. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Remember, Balak was the king of Moab. The Bible teaches us that the Messiah was to be the descendant of Jacob. Fits this prophecy. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus calls himself the morning star. He was a star from Jacob. The word scepter means ruler, and certainly Messiah will be a king. These are all prophetic references to Jesus Christ. In fact, some scholars see in this prophecy a reference to the star of Bethlehem that pointed the way for the Babylonian magi to find their way to Jesus' birthplace. And it's interesting that the wise men who came to see Jesus, they were from Persia or from Babylon, and thus they were descendants of Balaam. They were likewise a group of Babylonian soothsayers and sorcerers, and I'm sure they had studied Balaam's prophecies, and perhaps they had gotten the identification of the star from Numbers chapter 24. He says, Edom shall be a possession, Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Messiah's victory over both Edom and Moab will take place at his second coming. There are other prophecies that point to that. I believe this prophecy points to both Jesus' first and second advent. He says, Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away captive? Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Ashur and afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. In other words, Balaam sort of takes up his oracle, or this prophetic gift that he's using, and, and he sort of machine guns down all the nations surrounding, the Moabites first, and now the Amalekites and the Kenites and then the coasts of Cyprus he predicts, predicts that they all will fall to Israel some of these prophecies certainly will be fulfilled in the last days Balak has four times now tried to curse Israel but instead he's paid for four blessings verse 25 so Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place Balak also went his way but as Paul Harvey might say, stay tuned for the rest of the story. Chapter 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, idolatry. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Always remember the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And here's a great example. For when you flip over to Revelation chapter 2 verse 14, there we're told something interesting about Balaam. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Hey, God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel. So Balaam told Balak what to do so that God would curse them himself. Hey, Balak. Just send a few beautiful babes down into the camp. 
Just send in a few of your temple prostitutes. And the Hebrews will sell their soul for a few moments of sexual pleasure. And that is exactly what Balak did. He followed Balaam's advice. And the Hebrews were seduced by the women of Moab. They committed adultery. And they were led into idolatry. And Balaam was right. He earned his paycheck after all. Though God refused to curse Israel through Balaam's mouth, though God forced Balaam to bless Israel, Balaam ended up no blessing to Israel. For he taught Balak how to draw the Israelites into sin and therefore under the curse of God. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kills his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. God wants to punish these idolaters and then make examples out of them. Verse 6 tells us, And indeed one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. This was a brazen, open, defiant act of rebellion. This guy brings his girlfriend right in in front of Moses and in front of the tabernacle, in front of all Israel as they're weeping and repenting over their sin. He just kind of sashays through with this Midianite babe on his arm. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent. And here's an important sidebar. Since this is the only time in the Old Testament that this particular word for tent appears, some people believe that the man took this pagan prostitute into the tent, the tabernacle, the holy place of God, into God's tent. And Phineas thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel and those who died in the plague were 24,000. This was sin. This was an act of rebellion right in the house of God. They were committing blasphemous acts, idolatry and sexual immorality right in the house of God. It'd be like coming in here and doing something despicable right here in the altar of the church. And as a priest, it was Phineas's duty to see to it that they got the point. And so he takes a javelin and he thrusts them through, both of them. It took decisive action on the part of Phineas to stop the plague. Guys... Sometimes a situation can become so desperate that somebody has to rise up and say, enough is enough. And do something drastic to stop the rebellion, to stop the sin. Sometimes this has to be done in the church, in our communities, in our families. Sometimes we have to rise up and say, enough is enough, and we have to do something drastic. Verse 10 tells us, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Phinehas understood the severity of the situation. I mean, he hit the nail on the head and God commended his bold action. And guys, there are times, as I've said, in our families, in our church, in our community, in our country. When we need to take an enough is enough attitude. We need the zeal of the Lord to save lives. And I suppose for us, when we take up the zeal of the Lord, when we have that enough is enough attitude, we don't go out to kill others. Rather, we go out to spread the truth and spread life and spread the words of life. Well, verse 12 rewards Phineas with a special covenant. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, 
that it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Because of his willingness to take a stand for God, Phineas became the high priest and the high priesthood of Aaron passed down through the lineage of Phineas. Verse 14. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer. No relation to Bill Cosby, by the way. He was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. And there we have it. Next week, Numbers chapter 26, the Lord willing. So, what's that? My wife's signaling me. Oh, yes. We have another important announcement to make tonight. Tuesday night is ladies' Bible study. And we invite all you ladies to come out for a wonderful night of fellowship and fun and Bible teaching. You'll have a great time. Tuesday night, ladies, not ladies' Bible study, ladies' night out Tuesday night. Did I get that right? My wife's shaking her head. Blew it again. Ladies' Bible study. No. Ladies' night out Tuesday night. At 6.45, right? 6.45? Tuesday night for ladies' night out. Right here at Calvary Chapel. I think that's it. God bless you guys. Have a good evening. You're dismissed. Please don't sake me. Help me to see your. Oh my soul